Welcome to Inside the Writer's Cafe, brought to you on webtalkradio.net. I'm Cheryl Nason. This is a show about books and the people who write them. Each week it's our pleasure to bring you conversations with top authors of fiction and nonfiction about their latest work. Food headlines our show this week. Andrew Beers shares a fascinating story as well as fascinating historical recipes with readers in his book Twain's Feast, Searching for America's Lost Foods in the Footsteps of Samuel Clemens, published by the Penguin Press. Recipe developer extraordinaire Nancy Hughes shares fresh, easy, healthy recipes in her latest cookbook, 15-Minute Diabetic Meals, published by the American Diabetic Association. Andrew Beers earned his B.A. in Anthropology from UC Berkeley, his M.A. in Anthropology and Archaeology from the University of Virginia, and his M.F.A. in Fiction from Louisville's Spalding University. His work has appeared in the New York Times, The Writer's Chronicle, Gastronomica, Food History News, Ocean Magazine, Virginia Quarterly Review, Alligator Juniper, as well as many other journals. He's with us today to talk about this incredibly fascinating cookbook, history book, biography of Mark Twain. The title of the book is Twain's Feast, Searching for America's Lost Foods in the Footsteps of Samuel Clemens. Andrew, I can't wait to talk to you. Welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Let's try to give the listeners a little bit of an overview of what the book is about because you have just done such a fascinating job with this, and it's such a great idea. Well, thank you so much. Um, The book is about when when Mark Twain was traveling around Europe in 1878 and 9, he became – very frustrated with the food that he was eating. He was he was eating almost exclusively in European hotels and found the food very tired, old, um, out of season. He called it tasteless as paper. And so towards the end of his trip, uh, Twain, who was just a pen name for Samuel Clemens, sat down and wrote a fantasy menu, basically a list of all of his favorite American foods that he remembered from travels back and forth across the country over the course of the, the decades before. And this this menu ranged all over the place. He included fresh produce, regional specialties, wild foods. And it, he went on uh, for several pages, about 85 items of the things that he said he wanted the moment he got off, he wanted waiting for him the moment he got off the steamer home uh, back in America. And uh, these foods... The, he, he, got, he was very specific about some of them. He didn't just want mussels or steamed mussels. He wanted steamed mussels from San Francisco, uh, prairie chickens from Illinois. And so uh, in this book, I tried to choose some of those foods and find out why exactly he was so exact about them and what he was thinking of, what he remembered when, when he remembered these foods and said that he wanted to eat them again. Your original idea was when you were 32 – you were going to have breakfast with Mark Twain. And so you started to read all of his works. Is that how this book came about? Yeah. You know, I decided I was going to cook uh, Mark Twain's favorite breakfast. I wanted to do that for a birthday celebration. Because Twain's breakfast, it was it, it was this fabulously vivid description. This was also when he was in Europe. He said he 
imagined an angel sweeping down out of a better land <laughs> with the perfect American breakfast of an inch and a half thick porterhouse steak sputtering and fresh from the grill with mushroom gravy. He wanted buckwheat cakes with clear maple syrup, um, good American coffee with real cream, and uh, and smoking hot biscuits along with firm, real American butter. He, he much preferred American butter to European because American butter was usually salted. He thought European butter, which was unsalted, was something of a sham. Uh, so, I, so I cooked this meal um, for my birthday, and it, it, it was about as <laughs> good as it sounds. You know, I, I tried to take some time and find ingredients that would have been like the ones that, that Twain would have enjoyed um, you know, 100 and, 130 years ago. And uh, the... the the flavors that came through were just so vivid. Um, you know, it really got me excited to explore more of the foods on his menu and see see what the stories behind them were. Had you been a Twain fan? I mean, was this uh, a labor of love about Mark Twain? What brought this on specifically about Samuel Clements? Well, I, I had definitely been a Twain fan. I mean, that's how I came to be reading A Tramp Abroad, um, which, right. you know, I think is, you know, not not one of the first books you think of um when when you think of Twain, um, no, not you know, at all. You know, usually he's, you know, you go through Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn and many of his novels. Um, but you know, I was, I was, I've always been a big fan. You know, enough so that I was reading this book and came across the menu. The thing, the thing that really fascinated me about it and sparked me on this trip was the fact of how exact he was about many of the foods. You know, like the the, the steamed mussels from San from San Francisco. The fact that he didn't just want trout, but lake trout from Tahoe. And as I started looking at these foods, I started with prairie chickens from Illinois. Um, I realized that there was a, a real story behind each and every one of these foods. You know, I, I'd never heard of, of prairie chickens from Nor Illinois have I. before starting this. And you know, Twain said from Illinois, so I wanted to respect that and looked at you know what's the, what's the state of the birds there right now. Well, in Twain's day, there were 12 to 14 million of these large grouse in the tall grass prairie of Illinois. Today, that's down to about 300. Wow. And the reason the reason there were so many back then is that in Twain's youth, the prairie was being plowed up with the newly invented John Deere self-scouring steel plow, which was invented in 1837. While the prairie was being plowed up for a for a period, that whole area was part corn and part tall grass. So the birds had waste grain and cornfields they could raid for food and get fat on. And there was still enough tall grass for them to nest in and reproduce. So there, there, there were more of them in Twain's youth than ever before and ever since. They were an absolutely integral feature of that landscape. Then as the area started getting plowed up more um, and there was more and more corn, less and less grass, eventually there was some sort of tipping point and the, the birds started to disappear. So the, the story of prairie chickens and their place in American food. For a while, they were being hunted by the hundreds of thousands and shipped to great cities all across the country and were really a, a, nor a typical feature of American food. The story of the prairie chickens is also tied into the transformation of one of the really distinctive American landscapes, the tall grass prairie that used to spread all through uh, the, the American Midwest. And this, this was so striking to me that I wanted to see if similar things held for the other, for the other foods that Twain was exact about, the wild foods like uh, Tahoe lake trout, like sheepshead and croakers, which are both fish um, from New Orleans, Philadelphia terrapin soup, and on and on. It's just fascinating the way that you have woven your own personal story, the vintage recipes, and I'm dying to know how you came upon those and how you were able to get them. I was particularly, it's funny that we're talking about prairie hens because 
when I was reading the book, first of all, I started laughing immediately. Your wife must be a wonderful woman. <laughs> she thought you were going to be this whack job, you know. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah, she put up with a lot. There was there was some danger of eccentricity when you start going down this kind of road. You had me on the first page talking about the prairie chickens when you described her reaction, and she was afraid of you know you were going to start walking around campus throwing up your hands and saying things to strange people. But the the recipe. I read this um, on page 18. It's Estelle Woods Wilcox, and the recipe came from Prairie Chickens from the Buckeye Cookery and Practical Housekeeping, published in 1877. And the very first thing that um, Ms. Wilcox tells us to do is to cut out all the shots. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's Buckeye Cookery was one of the. It was one of the really significant cookbooks of that era. It was, an, it was basically a compilation of um, recipes from Ohio housewives, and it became incredibly popular all across the country. It's still an absolutely wonderful book. I mean, they've got everything from home remedies to, you know, obviously lots of recipes for food and, you know, home-brewed beer and whatnot, and a lot of recipes for game, which I think is what you're seeing there with the, the cut-out-all-shot. I mean, this this was one of the really striking things to me was that in Twain's day, game and wild foods still existed on American tables to an extent that they just don't anymore. Right. I mean, we, st we still have some wild fish, but back then people could have told you, I mean, diners in New York City, in Chicago, in Boston, or you know, any, any large city could have told you the difference between a mallard duck, a redhead duck, and a canvasback in the way that now people can talk about catfish, tuna, and salmon. It was a, it was a very distinct um People people knew that more about game than than non hunters <laughs> tend to know now, um, but yeah, it was it was it was a it was a really fun process following Twain around the country um, and starting this whole process. My wife definitely had to be <laughs> to be tolerant of some of it, but it was it was so exciting to me not only to explore the history of some of these foods, but to see their condition today. I mean, it was really exciting to me to, to meet people that are growing cranberries in Massachusetts that are bringing back some of the oysters in uh, San Francisco Bay that are still cooking with sheep's head, uh, which is an absolutely fantastic tasting fish uh, in New Orleans that are, that are bringing back some of the terrapin, the aquatic turtle in, uh, in the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, people doing really, really interesting work. How did you discover the recipes. How did you discover the the Buckeye Cookbook? That's that was very interesting to me. The idea that you also discovered this treasure trove. That I mean, I never knew that this existed. And I began to read your book, and I began to see all of the vintage recipes, and I thought, where did these come from? Well, you know, it's just a process of trying to figure out what the significant cookbooks um, were back then. I mean, there's some there's some great food histories like cooking in you know cooking in the late federal period and that kind of thing that point you in the right direction. And then you just follow the kind of follow the tree, yeah, <laughs> um, follow follow the branches you go through here. There's also a wonderful site for anybody who's interested called Feeding America. Um, it's it's a compilation of historical cookbooks. That's a wonderful place to get started and re kind of figure out which copies you'd like to have on your on your shelf in in hard copy because many of these are are worth having. Well, we talked about the fact that there were 85 different dishes on that original list that Twain had in Tramp Abroad. What drew you to the eight that you chose to include in this book? A couple things. It was 
first of all, the fact of how precise he was about them. N- nearly all of these were were rooted in a, in a specific American place that he knew and loved during his travels. So, you know, prairie hens from Illinois is one example. Another example um, is lake trout from Tahoe. You know, the fact that he said from Tahoe, well, he was only at Lake Tahoe for several weeks in 1861. He'd fled west um, away from the Civil War before either the Union or Confederacy could draft him. You know, he was, he was a steamboat pilot at the time and would have been a very valued addition to either either military. So he he left. He went he went to uh, the High Lake Tahoe on the Nevada California border. He was only there for a few weeks, and during that time, truly fell in love with the location. He he, he always years later when he visited the Sea of Galilee, most of what he had to say came down to, well, Galilee is nice, but it's no, it's no Lake Tahoe. Um, this was one of the really great good places of his life. And it was um, striking to me that when he thought about Lake Tahoe trout, he had to be also be thinking about this specific moment in his life. These These were ways of, he didn't just want to taste these foods again. He was using them to remember special times that he'd had and special places that he'd experienced. And so I I wanted to look at places, to foods that were connected to places in his life. And, you know, that's true for the ones that he names in terms of Illinois, Philadelphia, and so on. But also um, other things like like raccoon, for instance. I think he re- he was remembering hunts that he went on in his uncle John Quarles' prairie farm um, in Missouri, and that he he remembered that experience very vividly. Um, you know, cranberries and, and maple syrup, I think, were very connected to New England, where he settled down later in life with his family in Hartford. Um, so that, that's really what I was looking for: was the connection between food and place, and you know, the things things that he experienced not only in his youth, but also later in life as well. Was it easy to determine once you had the place and the food to determine the point in history when Twain experienced that? Yeah, it was striking to me that in nearly every case, when he mentions a food from a place, he also did some beautiful writing about the place. Um, Lake Tahoe is a great example. San Francisco, he wrote about at length. New Orleans, certainly. He always said that... um, Cooking from New Orleans is as delicious as the less criminal forms of sin, and he he loved the city. He always experienced. He he used to stay there for several days at a time when his steamboats would would uh, pull up on the wharf there, and he had a few days before piloting them back back north. Um, you know, he'd been at Philadelphia as a printer's apprentice. But yeah, these these were all things that he'd experienced during discrete moments um, during his travels around the country. And usually, and often places he didn't go back to that much. I mean, when he left Lake Tahoe in 1861, that was it. I mean, he never would have eaten the, the trout from the lake ever again. Um, so, yeah, it was it was surprisingly easy, at least in, in the beginning it was surprising to me, how, how easy it was to figure out when he would have eaten these foods. Was there something that you found out during the course of your travels and, and research that was surprising for you about him and or about the food or just anything surprising that you didn't expect? Oh well, there there were surprises all the way along along the line. I mean, you know, I was surprised to find out that the that the Lake Tahoe trout used to grow to thirty pounds as opposed wow. to five now. I mean, that's, that's a completely different fish than you see anymore. It's almost like an ocean going salmon, and that's that that was stunning to me. Yeah. Um, you know the fact that the that the reason that we can't uh, eat oysters out of San Francisco Bay anymore is because of 
gold mining pollution from Twain's day that it lasts that long. That was that was striking to me. I didn't know that sheep's head tasted as good as it did. Um, it's, it's an absolutely wonderful fish. Some people call it poor man's crab, and it tastes a lot like jumbo lump crab when it's when it's cooked right. Um, the fact that cranberries are still nearly wild berries. You know, the varieties that we the varieties that we cultivate today are the same ones that were basically discovered and pulled out of wild bogs in the 1840s, um, just particularly good-tasting and well-productive vines. Um, the, fact that, the fact that maple syrup, which I think of as a completely homey and domestic food, still remains largely a wild food. These trees take 40 years to grow to the point that you can tap them without hurting the tree. So most people rely on wild sugar bushes, wild groves of maple trees that are scattered throughout um, New England and the whole American Northeast. Um, I, had, I had no idea about that. I'd assumed that it was more of a plantation um, that people would be using to tap their sugar maples. But really, you're relying on things that were done by previous generations. And people are obviously are um, often taking uh, sap out of their neighbors' backyards, with permission, of course, and boiling it down to make to make um, to make maple syrup and maple sugar. That was that was a surprise. So really. Uh, all the way along the line, there was there was something there was something new. Re but really, I guess the, the the big surprise right at the beginning was the fact that Twain was so current. He was so in tune with what with our with a lot of thinking about um, American food today. Where his his insistence on fresh, lovingly prepared food that was pretty much by definition local, and he said where he wanted these things from. That, those can come off as modern catchphrases sometimes, but it was it was striking to me how much these these phrases have been, or these standards rather, have been the basis for the best American cooking for a long, long time, for generations, hundreds of years. Not for all American food, it's the, but the best American food has always relied on the quality of the ingredients. It's such an an incredibly abundant country that it just makes sense to be. Um, appreciating the the best produce that it has to offer, the best wild foods that it has to offer. And I, I think Twain um, gave me a new appreciation of that. I have to say that before I read your book, I had never even connected, never even particularly thought about Mark Twain and food. And you open with a quote at the very beginning. And Twain said, if I have a talent, it is for contributing valuable matter to works upon cookery. <laughs> and I thought that was a perfect quote to open the book. If you could sit down face-to-face -face with anyone who is listening to our show today, what would you like to leave them with about the book? I think I'd like to leave them with Twain's appre appreciation of how much good food can play a role in marking out our lives and helping to define our memories. Um, you know, it Eating distinct food, whether it's because it's grown in your own garden, whether because it's grown locally, whether it's because it's prepared by somebody that you care about, that's something that really helps you to remember your life. It's something that that, that gives a moment value thinking back on it. And I think Twain had, had, a, had a real appreciation for that. And it's something that people have always appreciated, but I think are coming to appreciate more in this country right now. And I think that that's, makes it a very exciting time for for American food, to see people try to bring food into their lives in a distinctive way and appreciate what their local areas have to offer, um, as opposed to, um, you know, insisting on having things that are identical each time we try them. Um, you know, I, th I think that that 
eating seasonally and accepting that we can't have everything every time we want it is actually a really wonderful thing to do. It's it's something that helps to mark out the year and and even longer times than that. So, well, as a former teacher, if I were still teaching, whether it was English or history or something like that, this would be a book that I would get hold of and that I would take into my classroom and that I would use because I think it gives that whole time period, Samuel Clemens slash Mark Twain in particular, that heartbeat and breath sounds that often when you're trying to teach kids about history or about food or about any of the kinds of things that you could use with this book, they don't quite have that understanding. And I think a book like yours, and I don't think there is another book like yours, I love this so much, would do exactly that because it ties it into a place that everyone can understand because everyone eats. And by showing him as a real person who ate and who tied food to what he was doing, I think it would just change the whole dynamic of who he is from a kid's standpoint because all of a sudden I think they would have a different understanding of him. Andrew, this is just a, a, a there's no way that we can really give the listeners a, an idea of how fascinating this book is. But thank you so much for spending time with me today and being a guest on Inside the Writer's Cafe. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, and I wish we had another half hour to talk. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. It's really been great. You're listening to Inside the Writer's Cafe, brought to you on webtalkradio.net. Nancy Hughes is the author of 12 cookbooks. As a recipe developer, she has over 5,000 recipes in print, and she's contributed to more than 45 cookbooks for organizations like the American Heart Association, Better Homes and Gardens, Cooking Light, Weight Watchers, Betty Crocker, and Publications International. She's the author of the four-ingredient diabetes cookbook, but she's with us today to talk about her new cookbook, 15-Minute Diabetic Meals, and that cookbook is published by the American Diabetes Association. Nancy, it's such a pleasure to welcome you as our guest on Inside the Writer's Cafe. Cheryl, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited about this book, and I, I really want to get the word out because it's it's so doable. It is so doable. <laughs> I have to read our listeners the very first thing. There's a, a really – when I read this, I mean it just – hit home with me. You have a little page that says something to think about, and here's what it says on that page. In 15 minutes, you can call for pizza delivery, or you can stand in a line, in a long fast food line, but think about this. It takes that long, and sometimes longer, to order it, wait for it, and pay a lot for it. So, why not take those same 15 minutes and enjoy healthier, cheaper, and more flavorful dishes that make you feel better all the way around. It's your choice. It's something to think about. I think that is just a superb way to start this cookbook. Well, and it's so true. It is so true. It, you do step back and say, wait a minute, You know, how many fat grams do I need? How, many, how much sodium do I need? How much... Bad stuff do I need to put in my body? You know, once in a while it's fine to do that. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it because I do. I mean, everybody should do it a little bit. I mean, shouldn't necessarily shouldn't or should. Just if they want to once in a while, that's fine. But don't make it a, a daily habit 
because when you do that, it builds. It builds and it builds and it builds, and you don't realize it. But you're, you're paying a lot of money to do bad things to your body. And, you know, everybody thinks that it's expensive to eat healthy. It's not. When you think about it, you go buy an apple for 50 cents. If you go into a restaurant, what can you You know, you think about it that way, too. So <clears throat> it's just really important to have things. It's real important to have things on hand. Um, the reason I wrote this book was had it titled this way I don't know, viewers, I mean, listeners can't see this book, but it's a, it has a real clean, crisp white background with a lady with a khaki apron on, just kind of blurred, walking in the background. And you have this clock in the front, and it says 15-minute diabetic meals. And it's kind of a whoosh effect. I love <laughs> but it that. gives people the idea that it, it sparks them. You know, it, I've written all sorts of books, a four-ingredient, you know, really fast, quick and easy uh, tons. I've been writing for over 25 years, and I thought with this book, you know, shorter s- sparks. It really does spark, and that's the intention was to spark people's interest. And if you've got their interest, they'll pick up the book, they'll look at it, and realize this is doable stuff. And it's real. F- I mean, you don't go to special food stores for it. You go to your local grocery store. When I was writing this book, if I couldn't get it at the local grocery store, it didn't go in the book. I mean, I just I don't have time to sit there and get in that car and go from store to store to store. And so that's, uh, I'm very much for the reader. I'm very much for people with diabetes because it is rampant and it needs to be taken under control. I mean, there's like over 23 million people have it and another 57 million are pre-diabetic. So it's like, wait, you know, it's an epidemic. And if everybody ate like this, this is, I've written a lot of books with the American Diabetes Association, and my editor first started out with my very first interview, and I was so nervous, and I'm rambling on and on here, so stop me. If I... <laughs> well, but you know what? You're right. You are rambling on a little bit, but what you're saying makes perfect sense, and I think what that should do for our listeners is make them realize how very passionate you are about this and how important this really is to you. And I have to say, I know that the cookbook is 15-minute diabetic meals, but I looked through this, my mouth watered. I thought, you don't need to be diabetic to want to cook these things because, first of all, the, the photographs in the book are absolutely beautiful. It's a small book, it's a paperback book, and the words 15 minute got my attention for exactly the reason that you just said. The fact that it doesn't matter if I'm a diabetic or not, 15 minutes to make a healthy meal gets my attention. Well, and that's what my editor was saying. She said, Nancy Hughes, would you stop and look? And I'm going, I don't know what I should say, what should I do, what they ask me the wrong question, I don't know. And she said, Nancy, stop! And she said, if you get one point across, this, this, you know, it's normal food for normal people. If people would eat like this, they wouldn't have as many problems. And she said, look at your recipes. They're for everybody. And and she, and there's no, like I said, no special ingredients, no off-the-wall ingredients. It's real. It is what, real stuff. What's the deal, Nancy? Why is diet so important if you are a diabetic? And I have known people who had diabetes, 
and who didn't follow a diet, and it seemed that their quality of life was not very good. Why does diet impact diabetes so positively or negatively? Well, you need to keep your blood sugar levels um, balanced, and so you need to have about the same amount of carbs for every meal. And for a lot of people, especially if you go to fast foods, and I am slamming the fast. They're getting better. They are getting better. But restaurants across the board, I mean, if you go, your your vitamins are all cooked out of the meal most of the time. I'm not saying all the time. <clears throat> and that's why home-cooked meals are so important. <clears throat> Excuse me. But if you only have 15 minutes, who has time to make, you know, all these meals? Well, these are uh, – it, it, let me get back on track. I'm sorry. Um it's important to eat healthy because your system depends on it. Exercise is just as important as your eating. So you know, I'm not saying go run a marathon. I'm just saying walk, park your car a little farther away in the parking lot or or at the grocery store, wherever you're going. Do park it far away and go the extra length around the grocery store. Just do more walking. Just do move. Just move a little bit more, and, and do your system doable. will feel better. <clears throat> do and what's it, doable, it, right? Pardon me? Do what's doable. Do what's doable. Yes, ma'am. I mean, you know, not everybody has I don't have the time. Not too many people have the time, but you need to take some time, and you need to think about yourself, because if you don't think about yourself and you don't take care of yourself, who is? Who's going to do this? You can't depend on anybody else. You have to depend on yourself. And it's just baby steps. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to go conquer the world, but baby steps by having a normal dinner at night. But it's a little bit of planning ahead. I mean, I always tell, like I said, I've been writing for 25 years. I've been doing a lot of speaking engagements, a lot of cookbooks, a lot of recipe development, and when I and cooking classes. And when I talk to people, I, I, every time I cook, I think of a shortcut way of doing it because I know I don't have the time, and I'm kind of known as a lazy cook, but I'm not. But <laughs> I mean, I'm always looking for shortcuts because you'll do it. If it's easy, you'll do it. If it's a pain in the neck, you might do it once, but it's like, oh, you will remember it being good, but a pain in the neck, and you'll never do it again. So that's why my recipes are so easy. You have an organized grocery list. Like everybody has a a generic um, grocery store as far as there's always a produce line. There's always, I mean, a produce area. There's always a meat section. There's always a frozen section, always a dairy section. So make um things on a piece of notebook paper, just columns, and stick it on your refrigerator. <clears throat> so when you're going through these recipes, have a few on hand so you're not going and, and, and fill out the grocery list before you go, and it makes life so much faster, so much simpler. So when you do go, you get what you need for that day, but you also maybe get a couple of days in advance so you're not constantly going to the grocery store or constantly picking up for pizza. And you have a fallback. And it's been easy because you just grabbed a couple extra things while you're at the store, which is on your grocery list. But you know when you're at the grocery store, for example, and you're in produce, and then you go to, you end up going over to the dairy section, which is on the other side of the store, and you realize, oh my gosh, I didn't get the carrots. And so you got to go all the way back, or you just say, oh, I don't even need them anyway. But you do need them. So, but then you go back and get them if you if you can and if you have the time. But if I, you know, when I was writing this book, um, I was going through my testings for the third time, and I went to the store, and I mean, if I had to do this normally, like you just go to the store and you pick up the blah, blah, and the blah, blah, and the blah, blah, I would have been two hours in there. 
But with the grocery list, I was in and out of there in 15 minutes. And I had spent a lot of money because I was testing a lot of recipes, retesting a lot of recipes. I mean, like 100 recipes. So it wasn't like a $5.99 bill. But, um, but if you, I saved if you steps your, and energy. Coupons, yeah, you can yeah and I didn't have to go to bed when I got home from shopping. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just pay attention. And, you know, the other thing you talked about, when oh, yes. we first started talking about diabetes being epidemic in the United States, and the thing that scares me the most, I guess, is the number of children who are developing diabetes because I don't know what the schools were thinking when they did away with the physical education requirement in so many of the states. I think that's absolute insanity. But I am an old physical education major, and I did teach dance started teaching when I was 15, so I have that active lifestyle in my head. But these kids are so sedentary, computers, computer games, uh, everything is so wired. What about parents using cookbooks like this? I mean, like Pizza Mounds is one of the recipes that you have in here. This would be a wonderful cookbook to get to use to keep your children healthy. If you won't do it for yourself, Think about your children. Well, you're doing it for yourself because if you get the kids involved, then you don't have to do as much later on. <laughs> well, that's true. Good. Good point. Good point. And, you know, I, I know myself when I was younger, I uh, got in the kitchen. I'd throw everybody out of the kitchen and say, just let me have the kitchen. And I couldn't even drive yet. Dad Dad would go to the store and get whatever I needed, you know, little bits in there. And I mean, we came from a big family, so it was like I, everything mattered, Nancy. Everything matters. And so, you know, I couldn't go crazy and have lobster, but... <clears throat> they gave me some freedom. But I had the kitchen to myself, and it's real important for kids. This book, I mean, my gosh, you have recipes in here that have four ingredients, six ingredients. I mean, yeah. they're fast, they're simple, they're very well laid out. And it's okay to get tomato sauce on the book. It's okay to smear or even actually tear, you know, accidentally tear a page. <clears throat> if a book is used and loved, then you'll... You don't worry about getting stuff on it. You say, okay, I remember that because I had tomato sauce on that page. That's definitely the recipe I used before. I mean, (laughs) that's my bookmark. (laughs) I can identify. It's so funny because you're saying I can identify my favorite cookbooks. They're the ones with the stuff on them. And it's okay. It's okay. If you don't want to leave it out, put it in a drawer. It's okay. That's funny. But, you know, it, it brings a lot of comfort. And I, I got and, and it makes families happier when they're more involved. When my kids were little, they were a little bit picky, kind of, sort of. And I was like, I'm not going to allow that one. And so I took them to the grocery store. And they went, I don't like. I said, what do you like? Look at this produce line and pick out anything you want. Anything you want. Well, it might be like one kiwi or one you know handful of strawberries. Nothing. You know, I wouldn't go out and buy a bushel of everything, but. It was like letting them go to a candy store, but letting them go into the grocery store and pick out what they wanted. They participated. They came home and they were happy with their choice. And it, you know, you just you you just rearrange, redirect their 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 process, redirect their their aiming ability. I mean, and then when they come home, I let them pick out a recipe if they like. Um, oh, good idea. You know, I've got this peanutty dip. And it's peanut butter and fruit spread and a little soy sauce and ginger. And you use carrots, maybe carrots or apple slices to dip in this mixture. And they picked out these things. They 
stirred it together. So what if they slop up the kitchen or they get a dump it on the floor? I mean, you know, it. If you make a big memory, it is. It is. You're making a memory for a kid. Well, this is a testimonial. One of my children is now um, a, a chef. Because really? and I didn't take him in the kitchen and say, "Okay, I'm going to show you how to crack an egg." He watched, and one time he came and he he would, but I'd always let him have freedom, and he'd mess up sometimes. Okay, well, just clean it up, you know. I uh, don't don't do don't be the enabler and let them mess, make a mess and then you clean it up or fuss about it. Just say, "Okay, well, here's a rag and this is how you clean it up," and be just a little patient because it's a game. The whole thing's a game. If, if you make it like a game. It's so fun. It is fun. And you have those memories, and when, and they'll continue doing that and growing with it. If you could leave our listeners with two takeaways from this cookbook, what would you like to leave them with, Nancy? Ooh. Don't be so hard on yourself and go out there and enjoy eating. And with this book, you can. Or books like this. I'm not just saying mine, but with this book. Get a book. Use it for a tool and pick out the things that you want. That's the first one. And the second thing is stop thinking that you're different. You're actually in the way by eating healthier and the whole family, all your friends can eat the same way. Don't say it's good for me. Just say it's good. Oh, I love that. Now, if our listeners want to know more about you, want to get a copy of 15-Minute Diabetic Meals, where can they find out more about you? I know you have a website. Yes, my website is uh, www.nancyshughes, S as in sensational, um, <laughs> nancyshughes.com. And if they and want a copy of the book, it's available in bookstores, but they can also order it directly, right? Yes, they can go store, excuse me, store.diabetes.org. That's store.diabetes.org. Or you can go um, 800 number, which is 1-800-232-6733. If they want to know something about diabetes, if there's someone who happens to hear us talk about this cookbook and either they suspect that they might have diabetes or they have a child that they're concerned about, is there a website, and I know there is, for the American Diabetes Association? You can do two things. You can just type it in, American Diabetes Association, and it'll pull it up, or you can go to diabetes.org. Well, this has just been wonderful. I, you are so in, excited and enthusiastic and passionate about what you do, and it comes through with everything that you say. So thank you so much for being our guest today. Oh, and thank you. I started out saying nobody's going to tell me I can't have something, and I figured a way around it, (laughs) and I'm still doing it. (laughs) Well, you are delightful, Nancy. Thank you again so much. Thank you, Cheryl. You have a wonderful day. And we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for being with us today, and remember... Until you join us next time, pick up a good book and read.